Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Elisa Childers exposing a number of popular deceptions that don't fulfill their promises. The idea is that if you just love yourself more or do better self-care or, you know, read the right books or get the right counseling or join the right groups on Facebook or put the right hashtags on Twitter or whatever it might be, that you're going to be more happy and fulfilled. But I think what we're seeing bear out is the exact opposite. The more focused on ourselves we are, the more anxious we are, the more um, exhausted we are. Elisa Childers, next. Although earlier known for being part of the all-female contemporary Christian music group Zoe Girl, Elisa Childers today is a respected apologist, author, podcaster, and speaker. Her first book, Another Gospel, explained and critiqued what's known as progressive Christianity. Today she's with us to discuss her new book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, exposing popular deceptions that make us anxious, exhausted, and self-obsessed. Elisa, does this new book grow out of your first one, Another Gospel? I think there is a connection. It swings a little bit wider. So another gospel was a bit of a a spiritual memoir, a theological memoir, you might say, where I'm walking the reader through my journey of doubt and and up and out of that doubt. With Live Your Truth and Other Lies, it still has a memoir-ish quality in that there's a lot of storytelling, uh, you know, from my, my observations of life and when I was younger. But we swing a little broader to look at lies that aren't just coming in through progressive Christianity, but really come in through culture in general, and they really have to do with the lies we believe about ourselves. So things like you're perfect just as you are, you're enough for yourself, there's nothing outside of you that you need to complete you or make you whole. You know, these are the, the types of things we hear from culture, and they sound really positive. They sound like the thing you'd want to say to somebody who's having a hard day, but ultimately in the book, we dig down right underneath them and figure out where they fail just on a common sense level. And then we go to the Bible. And I loved getting to write this book because I got to spend so much time in the scripture just looking at the much better, more truthful, more freeing, and more beautiful message that Mm. the Bible has to give us. Is there a reason why this particular book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, why it's coming out now? Is there something that prompted you in the current cultural milieu to to write this particular book. Yes. Well, while the book is really written for both men and women, it's not specifically a women's book. Uh, it, it grew out of a talk that I had been giving at women's conferences for a couple of years now. So a couple of years ago, a friend of mine in Alaska invited me to speak at a conference at her church. And she said, what if you put together a talk that just addressed some of those pretty little lies that come through culture, but really a lot of Christians buy into as well. And so I crafted a talk about that. And it's been my my most requested talk at women's conferences for the past couple of years. And so I thought, well, maybe it's time to expand this out and take a look at even more. We, I think we covered five lies in the talk and just covering, you know, maybe t- five more. And so we go through some of these cultural lies that really have to do with the self in the book. But also, I tried to craft it in a way that it would be applicable to men, too, because ultimately, I think everybody buys into these types of lies, even if they express themselves or manifest mm. themselves in different ways for men and for women. So, these these lies, you're saying, they have uh, an appeal even to Christians. We can tend to Christianize them or somehow fit them into our Christian lives. They They sound good. Yeah, like for take for example the phrase "you are enough." There, there are a lot. I've seen this at 
um, churches have, you know, I've seen plaques that say you are enough and things like this. And I hmm. get, you know, where a lot of people are coming from when they say something like that. If you have somebody in your life who's just got a terrible uh, esteem of themselves, the way they look at themselves, they're always down on themselves. It sounds like then, you know, the thing you want to say to them, you're enough. But what we look at in the book is that this, even though it sounds good and it's the thing you kind of want to say, it really is an anti-Christian message at its core because Christianity tells us we're actually not enough. We're more than not enough. We're actually inherently sinful and we need to be rescued. We need to be redeemed. We need to be reconciled to a holy God. And so the message that's so much better than you are enough, which by the way, really puts a burden on the person that you're telling it to, because even though we mean well when we say it, we're essentially telling somebody you have to be the solution to all of your own problems. Like there's, you just have to look inside of yourself and figure out how to solve uh, this this low self-esteem or whatever it might be, whereas Christianity tells us that Jesus is enough, and he's way better than any of us will ever be anyway. And so when we're in Christ, his enoughness gets put on us, kind of like his righteousness gets imputed onto us, so that mm -hmm. when God looks at us, he sees the enoughness of Jesus. And so therefore, the message that we're not enough is actually good news because there's somebody way better than us where we get to sort of be covered in his enoughness or his righteousness. And so it's a, it's a much better story that the Bible has to offer. Well, the book is Live Your Truth and Other Lies, Exposing Popular Deceptions That Make Us Anxious, Exhausted, and Self-Obsessed. The title, Live Your Truth, uh, Elisa, can you help us to understand, in our culture, of course, if you say, um, I believe in Jesus, uh, I believe in the Bible, the common response would be, well, that's your truth, I have my truth, my truth is a atheism, we can just agree to each have our own truths. Mm -hmm. w what about that? That sounds so appealing. I, yeah. So when I was growing up in the church in the 80s and the 90s, um, you know, you might you might share your testimony with somebody and that might be something that would convict them to want to follow Jesus or something like that. But today we're living in a in a culture that's largely rejected the idea that when it comes to religion and morality, that there is any objective truth. So you could tell your testimony to somebody today and they might be genuinely happy for you and say, that's wonderful, I love that for you. I hope you continue to live your truth and do what works for you and I'm gonna be over here living my truth. So we've sort of, as a culture, divorced religion and morality from the idea of an absolute or immovable, unchanging truth. And so really, I think what we need to do as Christians is certainly we can preach the gospel and the Holy Spirit can convict somebody's heart Certainly. But in doing good evangelism and the apologetic that we need for this culture right now is we almost have to take a step back and make a case for objective truth before we even share the gospel because people are so turned around on what an objective truth might be. Because here's the here's just down to brass tacks on it, yeah. is that if Christianity is true, if, if it is true, then it makes very exclusive claims about itself and it excludes all other religions as a path to God. And so if objective truth exists, if Christianity is true, then there is no option to just you live your truth and and you and you know I'll live my truth because Christianity is actually true for everyone whether they believe in it or not, which has eternal consequences for each and every one of us and and everyone will ever meet. So it's really important as Christians that we recapture this idea uh, that truth is actually objective. It's not just true for you. It's actually true for everyone.
Can you make that case for us? I mean, I realize we could talk for the rest of the program about that, but yeah. if you're just having a conversation on a, as you state in the beginning of the book, you're on planes fairly often, or you've flown a lot, like many of us mm-hmm. have, or whatever the context might be, but how do you make that case? Well, I think you appeal to logic first and critical thinking. Uh, Just looking at a a logical law, the law of non-contradiction, which basically says that two contradictory statements can't both be true at the same time and in the same sense. That right there refutes relativism, which is the idea that truth is relative to each person. So I think uh, Nancy Piercy was who pointed this out, at least to, you know, in my reading is, Mm -hmm. is who brought it out for me in her upper and lower story analogy. But she basically made the point that Nobody in culture really lives like relativism is true when it comes to certain things like science, math, going to the bank, appealing to the law if a law is broken. People live as if objective truth exists, but what our culture has done is relegate the the categories of religion and morality more into the opinion or preference category. So, so if I were to say... Uh, I think that vanilla is the best flavor of ice cream. And you were to say, well, I think chocolate is the best flavor of ice cream. The claims that we're making about reality are subjective. They're based on the subject, you the subject and me the subject. There's really no standard outside of us that can decide what actually is the best flavor of ice cream. So it's an opinion. It's a preference. It's not an objective truth. Um, but And so as our culture tries to relegate morality and religion to those categories, it doesn't work, though, because these are claims that are testable in objective reality. For example, with Christianity, the Apostle Paul said that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain and you're still in your sins. In other words, if Jesus' body didn't come out of the tomb as an objective reality, as something that actually happened in history, then Christianity as an entire belief system is false. And you might as well throw your Bible out the window and go do something else. So Christianity isn't a philosophy that just works for you. Are you, you know, you find some kind of a a way to find peace in your life, although certainly it does bring peace into your life. It's an objective reality, and it stands or falls based on the resurrection of Jesus being an objective truth. And so I think to make the case for objective truth when it comes to religion and morality, that might be a great place to start is maybe show how different religions actually do contradict each other at their core. They violate the law of non-contradiction. And then when it comes to morality, I think People like to think that they don't believe morality is rooted in a, in objective reality of truth, but you know ultimately, if it's not, if if morality is simply subjective, then really it's just whoever's the biggest and the strongest mm-hmm. that gets to decide what's right or wrong. And we can all look at a just a cursory look at world history to see that's turned out very badly <laughs> many times in in world history. So um, I think just appealing to common sense and having these discussions with people, I, I think people are reasonable. And uh, a lot of times, in fact, it's very interesting, a lot of atheists uh, are, they believe in objective truth. So you can have these kinds of debates and conversations because everybody agrees, all right, there is an objective truth here. The atheist just thinks it's one thing, the Christian thinks it's another. But so many others in our culture today have bought into this idea that it's just kind of like whatever works for you. You do that and I'll do this. And so we just kind of have to take a few steps back and and demonstrate how truth just doesn't really work that way. Well, uh, Lisa, your book is Live Your Truth and Other Lies, Exposing Popular Deceptions That Make Us Anxious, Exhausted, and Self-Obsessed. Could you run down a few of those perhaps the most popular lies or popular deceptions uh, in our culture right now that will immediately resonate with people? 
Yeah, I think a big one, and this is, I think, one that's very tempting as a Christian even to believe, uh, especially as parents, and that's this idea that God just wants me to be happy. That's one of the lies that we interact with in the book because it sounds good. You know, yeah, God wants you to be happy. He wants you to have a successful life. He wants all these things for you. And certainly as a parent, I want my kids to be successful in their lives. I want them to um, have fulfilled lives. But more than anything, I want them to follow Jesus. I want them to know the Lord and walk with the Lord all the days of their life, even if that means that they are, uh, you know, do some kind of a job that not most people would wake up in the morning saying, hey, yeah, that's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. I would much rather them walk with the Lord. And so this whole idea of God just wants me to be happy, it's sort of, it, there's a lot of layers to it because I think it's sort of built on the idea that um, that the point of life is to avoid suffering and to mm. avoid conflict. And I think we see that play out in our culture. Our colleges are filled with safe spaces, with places where kids can go if they feel anxiety over a test and they can uh, opt to to not take the test and then their feelings are validated so they go to these safe spaces and this is something I, I've talked with college professors it's it's a massive phenomenon happening on our college campuses and ultimately what we have is a generation of kids who have never really had to have their feelings not validated and had to say look no matter how you feel this is what you have to do and you just have to walk through this because we all know that when we're buffered by suffering when we're buffered by trials and hardships, it actually makes us a lot stronger. It gives us more compassion for other people. And that's why I think the Bible has such a beautiful theology of suffering, because we know that no matter what we endure in this life, God is working all of those things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So we shouldn't necessarily always be trying to avoid suffering or trials, but really seeking what we can learn by walking through them. And it sounds like what you're describing as well is that emphasis on feelings, uh, if you have feelings in a certain way, then that, that therefore for you, that's objectively true, that idea of follow your heart. And, and I think you point out that that's a big a premise in a lot, of the, a lot of the Disney films. It, it certainly is. You know, I have, my kids are 14 and 11, and almost all the media that is aimed at my kids right now is uh, promoting an idea of following your feelings. That, And I think this is one of the biggest lies that so many of these other ones are built on. And that's the idea that humans are inherently good. You know, you're perfect just as you are. Mm -hmm. And if, if we really think about the ramifications for that belief, if we really believe that our hearts are inherently good, that really all we have to do is dig down inside of ourselves and just discover what's in there and then unleash that on the world kind of like as our truth— um, that's really built on a faulty idea that what you're going to actually find is something good, whereas Christianity has the exact opposite message to give us. It's actually, yes, we were created in the image of God, and there's value and dignity and worth to each and every one of us because of that, but all of us have distorted that image in one way or another with sin, and that's a message that the culture does not bring into the equation, is that actually what you've been made is been distorted by sin and by rebellion against a holy God. And so when we tell kids, and, and this is just, I mean, it's overwhelming the messages that are sent to them, like whatever you feel inside your heart, everyone should validate that and you should live that out, live your truth, right? And that's all built on the idea that you're actually good inside. But as I point out in the book, you can dig down inside of yourself and do more introspection, more self-love, more self-care, all those things. 
But when you get to the bottom of yourself, you're still going to find a sinner who's in need of a savior. And you will have spent so much time focusing on yourself and all of this other stuff when you could have spent time in the process of sanctification being more and more transformed into the image of Christ day by day, which is the the much more beautiful story that the Bible has to give us. And I think sort of hinging on to that is the, uh, I think you quote another uh, Christian apologist in your book who uh, talks about the theft of language or yes. the, the redefinition, redefinition of terms. Terms don't mean necessarily what they, they did just a few years ago. Yeah, that's a huge one. So that comes from Hilary Ferrer from Mama Bear Apologetics. And she called, uh, she coined the term, as far as I know, she coined the term linguistic theft. Mm. And ultimately what that is, is when words are repurposed or redefined to be used as tools of propaganda. And I also added that sometimes it's not necessarily even as propaganda, but it can just be something that's done unintentionally, where people can like take the word love. We can be talking about love, but we can, two different people can be talking about two completely different concepts. Mm -hmm. So for the Christian, love is going to be 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind, but it also says there that love cannot rejoice in wrongdoing, but love rejoices in the truth. So according to the Bible, the Christian, it's not loving to affirm something in someone else that's harmful or sinful. But the definition of love in culture is the direct opposite. That's a word that's been linguistically thefted, right? So according to culture, for you to be loving, you have to actually affirm and even celebrate whatever anyone else thinks or believes or behaves like. You're never supposed to judge those things. You're never supposed to challenge those things. Um, but this is the thing, and we point this out in the book, is that that's a very hypocritical definition. Because as everybody who's a Christian has probably experienced in culture, and especially on social media, is that if you go against the cultural narrative on almost anything, you get canceled immediately, or you can get canceled immediately. Mm -hmm. And that is is completely hypocritical because the same culture that is saying you have to love everybody and always be kind and always be tolerant is really turning out to be possibly the most intolerant culture that's come come along in a, in a very long time, at least ideologically. And that word tolerance used to mean one thing, and today it means essentially the opposite of what the it meant. The opposite. That's right. Classically speaking, tolerance meant that you had to, uh, that you actually by nature disagreed with what somebody was saying, but you were going to respect their right to have their opinion or have their say. That's classically what tolerance meant, but our culture has thefted that word and turned it really into uh, a, a word that means acceptance of everyone's beliefs. And But at the same time, the tolerance crowd is some of the most intolerant if you're a Christian, if you hold to biblical values when it might come to things like sexuality or uh, virtually any topic, if you have a biblical worldview on these things, you are not tolerated. And so it really is a definition that goes pretty much one way. Elisa, you are exposing uh, popular deceptions that make us anxious, exhausted, and self-obsessed in your book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, things like Follow Your Heart and you're perfect just as you are, and as you said that, the biblical definition or the biblical understanding of the self uh, obviously contradicts those, but what is it about believing those uh, popular deceptions that makes us or tends to make us anxious, exhausted, and self-obsessed? And of course, in this particular cultural moment, we almost everybody's familiar with those words, and most people do feel those things today. 
Yeah, I think that's true. And I think the statistics bear that out, especially some recent research that's been released through Barna in conjunction with Impact 360 on Gen Z. Uh, it's They're more anxious and depressed than ever. The, the mental illness is higher. So I think uh, it, it's borne out in the research that people are more anxious. And at the same time, these messages get more and more popular. And so I think, um, you know, that self-obsession is a big one. In a lot of the books that I've read recently that are written from a perspective of self-help, these are books that are written to Christians even and mm-hmm. or written by authors who claim to be Christians. And the answer to almost all the problems is the self. And, and so in the book, we call it the gospel of self because it, it's like if you the, – the idea is that if you just love yourself more or do better self-care or, you know, read the right books or get the right counseling or join the right groups on Facebook or put the right hashtags on Twitter or whatever it might be, that you're going to be more happy and fulfilled. But I think what we're seeing bear out is the exact opposite. The more focused on ourselves we are, the more anxious we are, the more um, exhausted we are. I mean, I, I just, I used that word exhausted because I reviewed a book uh, maybe a year ago that was written to Christians, published on a Christian platform. Mm. Now, it was a progressive Christian book, but uh, the whole message was like, here's how you're going to be free in your life. Here's how you're going to be just full of oomph and, and excitement, and you're going to reclaim all of that for yourself. And I f- literally felt exhausted reading this book. It was exhausting. The laundry list of things that I was going to have to do, um, the Facebook groups to join, the the different studies I needed to read, the psychological books I needed to read. And I just felt exhausted reading about all the stuff I'm supposed to do to have peace in my life. <laughs> and I remember just thinking, this is where grace is so beautiful. Mm. Grace being that unmerited favor. We don't deserve God's grace and love and salvation, yet He gives it to to us anyway, and we can rest in that. And then at that point, the Christian is on a journey with the Lord where the Lord shines light and we respond to that light in that process of repentance and sanctification. Um, But that's where the peace is found. That's where, you know, when we have peace with God, our creator, and we are actually fulfilling our purpose, which is to worship God, that's why we were created. When we're in right relationship with God, no matter what other problems we might have in our life, there's going to be a deep abiding joy and peace about us because we are living out our purpose, even if the things in our lives and other areas are not perfect. Even if we didn't get to read that study or do that a Facebook group or go through that class or that master course or whatever it might be, we have peace and there's grace to cover uh, what, where we do fail, grace to cover our not enoughness. And boy, I don't know about anybody else, but to me, that is a much more life-giving and freeing message. Is there any common origin, point of origin, or source where these lies, uh, these popular deceptions come from? I think just we to circle back to earlier, I think it is built on the rejection of absolute truth. I think that's a huge uh, point of origin. Mm-hmm. But honestly, if, we, if we're talking mm-hmm. about origins, we can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. You know, this this is the serpent saying to Eve, did God really say? Did he really say that? And then, you know, I've talked about that same serpent in the wilderness with Jesus, tempting him to sin, asking a slightly different question. In this case, when the devil was tempting Jesus, he wasn't so much questioning what God had said, but more what God meant by what he said, because the, the devil was quoting scripture back to Jesus when Jesus battled temptation with scripture. 
And the devil actually quoted scripture correctly, but he was twisting the interpretation. And that has to do with a rejection of absolute truth. Like, did God really mean this? Or can we reinterpret this in a subjective way, in a way that's relative to our cultural moment or something along those lines? And so I think that 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 crafty enemy is still asking those two questions. Did God really say, trying to undermine people's confidence in the word of God? And then if he can't do that, then, well, did God really mean? Maybe we can reinterpret all of these things to make sense of where culture's at morally, to make sense of where culture's at with all these other things. But that, again, is leading us down a rabbit trail that is exhausting and leading us to be obsessed with ourselves and what we think that things should be. You know, and so ultimately it leads us to create a God that looks a whole lot like the person we see when we look in the mirror. (laughs) Elisa, I know I have to let you go here in just a few minutes, but obviously a lot of these um, deceptions, these lies, these cultural uh, narratives and so on come through social media. Some of us may Mm -hmm. not partake of social media, but I, I read a statistic recently that said the average American spends something like two and a half hours a day on mm-hmm. various forms of social media, whether it's Facebook or whatever it may be. Do you have any thoughts, advice on filtering what washes over us all the time in our use of social media? Yeah, social media is a tough one. I think that's something that we're all battling. In the book, I compare it to the Tower of Babel. Mm. It's like we've recreated a digital Tower of Babel with social media where the world now once again speaks one language. When I was in high school, even up when I was a young adult, uh, I didn't necessarily know what people in Sweden thought about, you know, X, <laughs> Y, or Z. Right. And now that's one click away. The world speaks with one language again, and we have access to more information than we ever have before, just right at our fingertips, and not all of that information is accurate. And so I think that is another thing that leads to the exhaustion and and the the anxiety that people have. So as far as filtering it, I think my advice would be nobody actually needs it. You don't actually need social media. Mm. Um, I choose to be on certain platforms to help promote the ministry. But for example, I I deleted my Twitter account about a year ago. Mm. It was, I found myself feeling extremely anxious every time I would open up Twitter. People just had access to at me and and try to get my attention with all of these, you know, attacks and things. And I thought, you know, I don't need this in my life. And I'll tell you what, I haven't missed it, not once. I haven't missed it for one day. And so I think that giving ourselves permission that, hey, if there's a social media platform that's bringing you down in your walk with the Lord or spiritually, I mean, you don't need, you don't need it. You don't actually, you will survive without it. It's really true, I promise. And um, I think also it's a call for us as Christians to be extremely disciplined in how we use it. Um, I think that's a journey we're all on, and that's going to look different for different people. But I would say this, if we are spending more time listening to the opinions of other people on social media than we are spending time in God's Word, that might be a a, a good measuring stick. Like, am, am I spending at least the same amount of time hearing from God by reading His Word than I am taking in the opinions of so many different people on so many different topics? Well, Elisa, that sounds like a lot of what we're talking about is— um building discernment in our both in our hearing and our reading and our listening and our approach to things around us in our culture. Do you have any uh, thoughts, um, advice regarding how to stay grounded in objective truth in God's mm-hmm. Word uh, and, and to build that discernment when we're hearing something that's false and to realize that's that's not right? Yeah, I think the best way to build discernment is to be consistently in the Word of God. That's the only way 
that we're going to be able to test every spirit as the Bible tells us to do. I think discernment is one of those misunderstood topics. A lot of Christians, I think, think that it's like this magical sense in your soul where you just intuitively know what's right or wrong. That's actually not what the Bible's talking about when it's talking about discernment. It's talking about renewing your mind, washing your mind in the word. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. We need to have the word of God in our bones. And then we will recognize the counterfeit ideas, the counterfeit messages as they come across our social media newsfeed. But whatever we fill ourselves with most, and I'm preaching to myself here too. I mean, listen, we're all in this together and we all struggle to have the discipline to do this. But I deeply believe this is true. The more that I'm in the word of God, the more that I'm steeped in it, it doesn't matter what it is. It mm -hmm. could be a, a minor prophet. It could be an epistle of Paul. Whatever I'm in, it, it reveals the nature and character of God to me so that when these counterfeit ideas come across, then you get that red flag and go, well, that doesn't line up with that. And then you can investigate those, those kind of internal cues a little bit better, but we have to measure those against scripture because I'll tell you what, my heart lies to me all the time. Things that feel right, things that seem right, aren't mm -hmm. always what the Bible says is right. And so that's why we have to be in the word, even in the uncomfortable parts, because if there are not, and I'll say this too, and I, I, I'm not the first person to say stuff like this, but you know, if there's nothing in the Bible that offends your sensibilities, then you're probably reading it through the lens of self. I mm. mean, we should come, we should butt up against scriptures where we're like, "Youch, that hurts. I don't know if I like that. I'm going to stay with that one for a while because obviously that's an area in me that needs to come under the authority of the scripture and under the authority of God's revealed word. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, apologist Elisa Childers, author of Live Your Truth and Other Lies, exposing popular deceptions that make us anxious, exhausted, and self-obsessed. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Dudley Delfts on exploring the life and faith of Queen Elizabeth II. Billy Graham talks in his autobiography about their friendship and that no one in the United Kingdom had ever been warmer or kinder or more considerate of him and his ministry. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening. <laughs>